Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Wonger. Hi, everybody, and happy 2021. Happy New Year to all. Uh, on our first podcast for 2021, uh, we've got a very, very special guest, uh, Matt Dinsmore, who is uh, with Wilbur Total Beverage out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, Matt and his family have been on the front lines on building brands, serving great uh, distilled spirits brands uh, to Colorado consumers uh, since 2000. So they've been around and really have been an important part of making this great industry a success, certainly in Colorado. Uh, Matt, thank you for being here with us. Tell us a little bit about the family history and the history of uh, Wilbur's Total Beverage. Uh, We're excited to have you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Chris. And uh, thank you, everybody, for having me. Uh, My name is Matt Dinsmore, like Chris said. Kind of long story short, I grew up in the industry. Uh, My father was in retail in Denver in the 1970s. He always talks about what retail was like before computers and hand stickering bottles and everything. And um, he, he was a wine buyer at Heritage Wine and Spirits in South Denver from about 1973 or 74 until two, uh, until 1981. At that point, he left and he went to work for, at the time, it was uh, uh, Mirasu Family Vineyards when it was still owned by the Mirasu family. He left there. He, he worked with a gentleman named Bruce Herman, followed Bruce to Behringer Winery when Behringer was owned by Nestle Chocolate and Burger King at the time. And then in the mid 19 early, well, I can't tell you exactly, but about 1984, he left and went to work for a company called Shefflin in Somerset. Yep. He was with them in 2000. And, and I explained to people, Shefflin was a joint venture of Guinness of England. Um, and when Shefflin basically in the early 2000s, Shefflin split apart and became partially what's LVMH today and partially Diageo. So, um, you know, they, I believe they were English owned at the time and after 17, 18 years, dad found himself um, kind of looking for a job for the first time in 20 years. And at the time, uh, I was 20 years old. I was in college. I knew how to how to drink um, spirits and wine and beer, not so much about selling it. And uh, dad, uh, although he'd always been based out of Denver, we live in a, a small community called Loveland, Colorado, um, right by Fort Collins, Colorado. And dad decided, you know, maybe it's time to get back into retail. And Uh, I went to work with him. I had a whole group of buddies. We'd gone through middle school and high school and baseball and football. And honestly, we were all 20 years old. So working in a liquor store seemed like a dream come true at the time. Sure. Yeah. And uh, how how do y'all distinguish yourself with uh, uh, your competitors in the neighborhood? What's unique about about Wilbur's that that brings in uh, those mighty consumers into your store every day? You know, it, it's evolved over the years. At first, when we bought an existing business in 2000 that was about 11, 12,000 square feet, which for Colorado was a decent sized liquor store. Uh, we moved in 04 next to Whole Foods Market and expanded to 25,000 square feet. 
Um, since then, it's it's been a roller coaster ride. But I, I think uh, the size and obviously the selection of a lot of your members' products, uh, customer service, and I, I hate to say this, running it like a legitimate business, trying to in some ways act like a big box retailer, but also having the family feel and customer service you're not going to find at, um, you know, going into a Walmart or a Costco. Sure, absolutely. And y'all invest a lot of time and effort into marketing and communicating, right? Uh, really promoting the Wilbur's brand and communicating to the public and in, in the community in Fort Collins. How important yeah. is that? Well, it's it's been one of our different because from day one, we knew, um, you know, we can all compete at Budweiser at X price or Jack Daniels at Y price, but how do you build a brand? And part of that shows through even in our name. Uh, you know, we always said college this or college that. In Fort Collins, there's a hundred businesses. And we'd always talked about how do you do crazy eddies, but not maybe crazy eddies. And Wilbur's was the example of, um, you know, you're building a brand. First off, it's a name nobody's going to copy because it's a little bit different. Um, and, and we weren't always competing on price. We were competing on service selection and uh, um, obviously trying to build a brand of our own. Uh, very similar to the way a lot of your members do, trying to build something that's synonymous with uh, a, an image that you want to portray to your consumer. Yeah. And Matt, there's there's an ongoing you know debate within the industry. The brand building starts in the on-premise. It's certainly bars and restaurants or brand building starts in the off-premise as well. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your philosophy on brand building. So for many of the distilled spirits uh, suppliers that are members of Discus, no doubt uh, their brands are being built in, in Wilbur's uh, Total Beverage right before Collins. Could you just elaborate on, on brand building and why that's so important as part of the experience of being a, a customer for Wilbur's? So it's... It you bring up a great topic because I think you have you have the tale of two cities. You have pre-COVID, and then obviously you have COVID that threw a wrench into brand building as Joe Consumer moved to uh, commoditize brands and familiar names. Um, Pre-COVID, uh, um, it, it's interesting because I look at it from a retail a retailer standpoint, but also growing up as a kid doing the the barback surveys with my dad while he BS with the restaurateur, the bartender because I, I could get it done while he was, you know, shooting the breeze. But, um, you know, I think it's a balancing act. I think I think there is truth to brands being built on premise. Um, I, I think historically, sometimes that could get a little out of whack. Obviously, marketing is key. I think we all realize that. But a lot of times, marketing departments aren't necessarily people who have boots on the ground. So you got to be careful that you're not getting it from a PR firm in LA or New York that's telling everybody what mid-America's next hot button is going to be because that, that isn't always true. Um, sometimes things that happen on the coast take years to actually happen in mid-America or sometimes they never come to fruition. But on the other hand, I also think you have to be careful um, that those marketing departments do have access to data and also trends and different things they can see, not only nat nationwide, but globally of what consumers are doing. So um, I think those dollars spent on premise are important dollars. Um, sometimes I think those dollars may be a little out of whack. 
Um, you know, when companies are spending 80 to 90% on-premise and 10 off-premise, I, I think you need to steer it back maybe to a little better equilibrium. Obviously, as a retailer, that's self-serving here. But uh, now COVID, I, I think we all realized that having strong brands paid dividends. Uh, we saw this early on that, um, you know, you're commoditized, whether it was Jack or Tito's or Beam or, you know, Glenfiddich Scotch. Those were familiar names that people really reverted back to and said, you know, this, this is what I'm comfortable with. Sure. I bet it's been uh, for the Colorado Craft Distillers, which they're a mighty group in Colorado. You know, that's been one of the challenges for the craft distillers because part of their experience is uh, visitors going to the tasting rooms and, and trying the product and so forth. And we've seen the market trend where uh, consumers have really gravitated to the brands that they know. And I think one of the things coming out of the pandemic, hopefully, will be, uh, you know, a greater platform for, for test and trying as well and in and really uh, consumers being introduced to new brands and so forth. And that's for the greater good of the industry. Uh, Matt, what, what are the big trends that you see happening in Colorado? Uh, of course, you know, Colorado is infamous for the legalization of uh, recreational marijuana and so forth, but uh, what are the drinking trends right now? Is it all about tequila, American whiskey, bourbon? Uh, any any new trends, particularly during the the age of the uh, the pandemic that we're all grappling with? You know, I, I think it's a mixed bag. Um, I, I think you're you brought up the Colorado craft distillers that have had a, a, a rough year. Same thing with Colorado craft brewers. I, I think as we get back to whatever normal becomes, um, I think a story is important. And these folks have a story to tell and people are really going to want to support local. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Last spring when all hell broke loose, it, it was commoditized brands. We saw a ton of rum and gin, believe it or not. It was interesting to watch wow. rum because, um, you know, for 20 years, I've heard rum is the next category uh, and it just never seems to grab hold. Um, obviously Colorado is a cold weather state. So come October, that slowed down a little bit. I, I think bourbon is, you know, still on a tear. I, I saw with Joe consumer that a lot of people had a lot of extra time and a lot of extra money. And they were able to read about all these great bourbons that were out there. Um, you know, BTAC and Pappy and all these things. We normally get a lot of requests kind of went off the rails this year because all of a sudden people had pen up and pen up money. Um, but I, I think spirits for us has outpaced the rest of the store. Uh, beer in Colorado, three, two beer went away from grocery stores at the beginning of 2019. So we've seen a shift. Um, we used to be about 50% wine, 25 spirits, 25 uh, beer. beer. Right now dropped to about 40 liquor 40 wine and 20 beer. So we've seen wow. a shift. Um, I think a lot of people are at home making cocktails, experimenting. Um, you know, one thing I would bring up, you know, the big distilleries get this, but I think the little guys may want to steal out of this as small sizes have been uh, a great entry because you, you've lost that access at your tasting room. And you've also lost really the neighborhood bar or restaurant or tavern to taste people on that getting your spirits into some smaller sizes as a sampler um, will help a lot of those, those craft guys. 
Great insights. Yeah, absolutely. And from, from a great retailer's perspective, uh, if you wanted to pass along, you know, one message uh, to suppliers as they think about uh, access into Wilbur's and building their brand in Wilbur's, of course, you, you gave some great advice of not being too guided by the PR firms based out of New York and in LA and so forth. And there's an opportunity there for uh, looking at uh, some of the smaller scale bottles uh, to, to increase sampling and so forth. What would be your advice to, to suppliers around the country to make sure that their brands can really come to life in a Wilbur's Total Beverage? You know, it, it, I, I love that question because it, it goes back to the basics. Um, at the end of the day, we're still in a people business. And obviously what's in the bottle counts and pricing counts and marketing counts, but people business with people they like. And I, I realize that's different when you're dealing with some national chains, whether it's, you know, big box or even in the liquor tier, there's a couple people, but whether it's the supplier rep with the distillery or the brewery or the supplier rep with the wholesaler, um, as we speed up the shift to technology, which we're doing right now with a Zoom call, a, yeah. a year ago, if you'd have told me we were doing this, I'd have said, you're crazy. I didn't know um, what Zoom was, right? <laughs> and, and now you've got Zoom fatigue. You're like, oh my exactly. God. But this is going to speed up the pace of technology. And this is going to speed up the pace of consolidation. Um, I think it's important for people to realize that relationships still matter. and relationships help build brands in many ways. Uh, my own personal story, I remember going to Sazerac uh, in 2000 and I think it was seven, right as the global markets were collapsing every day, the Dow's off 3,000 or 4,000. And I remember our rep telling us that, you know, their big focus was this Dr. McGillicuddy's fireball. And I'd have told you he was crazy at the time. And here we are, almost 14 years later and you go, okay, you know, those were brands that people stuck with. They built those relationships and they gave the brands the attention. They gave them the manpower. And then they also gave it the longevity to say, this is going to be a slow burn. Most of these things don't happen overnight. And even a guy like Tito's, you know, everybody talks about Tito. Well, that, that didn't happen overnight. That was the best 15 year story that people condense into one year. Yeah. So patience, patience and investment, it takes time, right? You don't do it, you don't do it overnight. Uh, with Fort Collins, uh, you know, being the heart of a college town with Colorado State University, right? Uh, uh, obviously upholding the high social responsibility standards and ensuring that that Wilbur's total beverage isn't isn't serving product to uh, maybe some 18, 19, 20-year-old that are trying to get in and make, make their purchase with a fake ID. How do y'all manage that and stay, stay out in front? I imagine y'all work very, very closely with uh, the, the Fort Collins uh, uh, Police Department just to make sure everything stays safe and uh, above board, right? Yes, sir. So we have, a, we have a great working relationship with, first off, Colorado State University, um, we worked with them for almost 20 years. There was a young lady in 03 named Sam Spady who died her first weekend away from college um, with overconsumption. And as a local industry, we looked at it and said, hey, if we don't self-regulate, um, we're going to have 
problems. And as an industry, especially, I, I think what you guys are doing is amazing. I think at a national, a state, and even at the local level, having these tough discussions because there are differing viewpoints. Um, so we work closely with CSU. We work closely with Fort Collins Police Department. We were actually one of the founders of what we call RAR. It's responsible alcohol retailers. And at first it was just alcohol, but we've actually moved into cannabis as well. He brought up that we were one of the first states with recreational marijuana. Um, and basically as a member, it's sharing of best practices of how to safely and effectively sell a controlled substance. And uh, so we work with those, you know, this year has been a challenge. You add in, you know, face masks and spit shields and we have shower curtains in the store. We've had to adjust our physical plant to make it um, safer. You know, the way we've done business, the way retail has done business the last 500 years got thrown out the window this year. And so how did we change ingress and egress and pinch points and make our store um not only mentally, but physically safer for our, our customers and our team. But that also included the shift to, um, you know, we do Drizzly, we use City Hive, we do, we did 11,000 deliveries last year. I did a little over a thousand a year before. How do we make sure that not only in the store we sell in responsibly, but also once we leave the store? And, and part of that is we, we don't deliver, we boxed off campus. We don't go anywhere near sorority row or to the dorms. Uh, there's student neighborhoods that we have just simply said, we're not going to serve there. And it, it's not that there's not legal 21 year olds there. It's just the risk of making a mistake or showing up to somebody's house where he's 21 and his five roommates are 18 for us as responsible retailers, it doesn't make sense. Absolutely. And it just reaffirms, well, thank you for, for your leadership on that front because, uh, you know, alcohol, alcohol and the role of responsibility, it's a community effort, right? And I know our nation's retailers are on the front lines and share that commitment totally. You all are certainly doing that. Uh, the supplier tier has a role to play in that, and we're proud of the role that Responsibility.org plays with our programmings. Uh, you know, our distributor partners do. Mom and dads have a role, and, uh, you know, friends have a role to look out after each other as well. So th thank you for that. Uh, the pandemic, I mean, the market has changed so dramatically, and you mentioned the accommodations that, and the adjustments you all have had to make to keep your customers safe. I mean, the way alcohol is delivered and sold has changed dramatically in just short nine, 10, 10 months. Uh, has that been, you know, we all recognize the hardship that our restaurant and our tavern partners are having uh, during the pandemic, but uh, to some degree, uh, great retail outlets like Wilbur's have, have been a benefactor of that, but you've had to make mighty adjustments. Do you think all of the market adjustments in large part have been ultimately positive? And do you think they're here to stay even beyond the pandemic? You know, I wish my crystal ball was a little less cloudy. Um, you know, I, I, you brought up our on-premise friends, whether it's our bars and restaurants and taverns, I think, um, you know, all of our hearts break for them because truly they are, they are paying a price. Um, you know, I, the personal anecdote here, when you look at the data, the data is not there for some of the restrictions that have made. Obviously, there's some good operators that 
did things absolutely appropriate. They were already clean. They're handling food for God's sake, but um, there were also some bad operators and I've seen both in our community. Um, I think the pandemic, we were talking before you got on the, the call, the lights at the end of the tunnel, it's just as a light six months out or is it eight months out? Or are you talking a year? Um, you know, the minute that this pandemic became political, it really made things more difficult yeah. for us. Had the police out here more in the last 10 months than I have the last 10 years for, you know, our cashiers have been assaulted because we require masks. We've had, um, you know, a lot of people are on the edge and it's with the election or before the election or COVID or people are pissed. We've just seen more irregular behavior than I've ever seen. So um, I think some of that, once bars and restaurants can get open, I think once we can start to get a vaccine rolling out and the numbers continue to decrease, I just don't know what the new normal looks like. Um, obviously, on, on-premise has struggled and off-premise has reaped the rewards. It, it's, it's heartbreaking because we are up, our friends are getting hurt and none of us like to see that. Um, I think there are you know, as Americans, we have short memories. I think a lot of people, once we can get out and feel safe eating and drinking out, people are going to go back to their old ways. But then there's also segments of the population, um, like my aunts or my parents, that this is probably going to change how they entertain uh, the the rest of their lives. And so I, I don't think it's an easy answer. I think time will tell, just like with the pandemic. I think we're going to have great clarity looking back in seven or 10 years and say, here's what we did right. And here's what we did wrong. Absolutely. Well, let's hope, let's hope the next three or four months, the vaccines really get out and, you know, uh, we get to warmer weather, we get through these tough winter months and, uh, you know, the industry will come out of the strong and uh, people will be safe and uh, certainly healthy. So Matt, you have played a leadership role with ABL, the American Beverage Licensees, working closely with uh, John Bonovich and and in the, the, all the retailers around the country uh, to protect and advocate uh, the interest for for uh, uh, our retail partners. Could you tell a little bit about that? I mean, it's important. Discus has always tried to work closely with ABL. Sometimes uh, there'll be different points of view on one issue versus another, but at the end of the day, uh, uh, suppliers are, uh, have great partners and partners with our distributors, of course, and partners with our retailers. Could you tell, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your role at ABL and why it's so important uh, for the retail tier to have a very strong and dedicated advocacy platform, uh, both on a local level and a national level as well? Perfect. Well, thank you, Chris. I think all of us know whether you're a supplier, a wholesaler, or a retailer, the pace of change is not slowing down. There are times we absolutely agree to disagree, but as an industry, we have more in common than we have apart. And that's where I think historically Discus and the Wine Institute and American Beverage Licensees, uh, for those of you who don't know, American Beverage Licensees is 15,000 of America's bars, restaurants, taverns, and retailers that come together in Washington, D.C. and try to keep an eye on things like tariffs or taxation or interlock systems in cars. And I think when we all look around, we are blessed to do business in the industry we're in. 
Um, I can't imagine selling paper plates or hubcaps or other things. We get to do some really fun stuff because it's such a great industry. And as we were talking about earlier, that if we can self-govern and we can treat this industry with the respect it deserves, as an industry, we're going to agree more often than we disagree. And I think when I speak for ABL, we all want to be responsible partners. We all want to sell to consenting sober 21-year-olds and also make this an industry that when you look around, there are many multi-generationals, bars and taverns and retailers. And I've got two kids at home and I'd love it if they were interested in being in this industry and making sure that we're at the table helping to kind of steer this ship because there's, you know, sometimes it's smooth sailing. There's other times there's rough waters, but uh, if we don't come together as an industry, even when we don't always agree, but at least have the conversation, it's detrimental to all of us because there's some people who still think that prohibition was a great idea and we should do it again. And um, I think anybody on this, on this webinar is going to agree that we, we don't agree with that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the communication and collaboration and agree with you hundred percent, you know, not, you know, there may be 10% of issues where there may be a different point of view, one side or the other, but 90% of the issues that we all work on, we all benefit from, and there's probably full alignment. So, and the, to recognize uh, the power of the partnerships between uh, the three tiers is critical. And I can tell you on behalf of the member companies of Discus, uh, we recognize and know that uh, y'all are the front lines with our consumers. Y'all are the front lines in telling the brand stories in many regards. And it's that consumer that walks into a Wilbur's total beverage and really appreciates the total experience of the brand, even by the time they get home and they open up that bottle and take that first great sip. You know, they're thinking about that experience they've had in y'all's store. So, well, Matt, on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council, just really, we just want to raise a toast and thank you for your leadership, everything that you do on behalf of uh, all the suppliers, uh, the craft distillers, certainly in the great state of Colorado and the role that you play from a responsibility perspective, your leadership with ABL, and uh, we just really appreciate the partnership and collaboration. So a great toast to you. And for everybody that's watching, you find yourself in Colorado, you got to go to Wilbur's Total Beverage and check it out and experience uh, uh, just a great, great store experience. So Matt, cheers to you and thank you for all that you do. Thank you, Chris. The Spirited Advocate podcast was brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. If you'd like to be a guest speaker on the show or send us topic suggestions to cover, please contact us at podcast at distilledspirits.org. And please like and share these episodes. Your support is very appreciated.